0: The podcast of this local government meeting is brought to you by Michigan Radio. For more coverage of local government meetings and to find out how you can support this service, go to
1: michiganradio.org.
2: Those in a financially financially viable manner
1: to achieve those. Can I just be clear? I am, not, I am not saying that we should remove a building and not replace it. That's not what I'm saying. I'm asking if there's anything more that we can do. And due to my sad confusion about the 500-year floodplain, I was hoping there'd be such an easy thing. But but I understand that we are removing a building that's already in the floodplain. There's also an enormous amount of compacted soil on that site. And that will be mitigated. And maybe that was about what he was going to say. Can we list anything else that we are doing to improve it over the condition that it is now or is that all we can say at this point that's an okay answer
2: additional not are we not only not only will any development there be designed consistent with our regulations Mm -hmm. that has never happened in the past so stormwater measures there are non-existent now so um so I don't I I am You can see I am tripping. I am not the expert to say that there are measures that we would do even above and beyond the standards, but I think that there's going to be a commitment you heard about, you heard about the ethics that I think ultimately it's, it's to some extent going to be driven by the city council. But at a minimum, we're going to meet those standards, there might be other measures, but I don't, we don't have the detailed engineering now, nor do I have the expertise to tell you that yes, it's going to exceed 500 year or what. Um, at a minimum, removing structures from within that site at their current elevation is going to be an improvement. Um, but again, certainly not as much of an improvement as doing that and not putting anything else there.
3: Maybe I can help. Flood
2: concerns and
3: and green infrastructure concerns as well. I mean, I think there's uh, I've heard a lot of the concerns from our neighbors and and also practice in the space. I think um, there are two components here. I do think there is a health safety health safety and wear, welfare component about actually having residential units uh, above a, a 500 year flood elevation, mm-hmm. so that units don't flood and you can evacuate residents should that be a concern. Now, let's also remember that we're 12 feet out of the air, so every residential structure that you th- can imagine along, around that area that's less than 12 feet out of the air and not up the hill would also be in, in that issue. So I, I wanna just level set some of those things. The other thing is the, um, from a flood concern, in the floodway, flood we actually wanna get water out you want in a flood event, you, you, you want to get water to move towards the river, right? Uh, in that scenario. So, I do think um, there are some measures that we can do to infiltrate here if we can do that around um, all the other contaminations concerns that you're hearing, which would have a positive impact on the surrounding neighborhood because it is, let's just assume, everything there, as you have said, is compacted and is running off. Um, so I think that those are the two components that I think that we want to just level set when people have concerns about flood and green infrastructure and the neighborhood. Um, and there are some things, as has been stated, that we can accommodate here with the with PUD, but other things that will happen later at a site plan level that I think um, will be important to continue to advocate for. I hope that is that helpful.
1: Yes.
4: Commissioner Weich. Mrs. Hall, would you come up? Just want to get you on the record about the affordable housing since you're in the room and you've been here the whole time. Uh, If I'm reading correctly, uh, this uh, PUD is uh, noting required affordable housing. Is that correct? Is that correct? Yes. Yes, it is. Uh, It says a minimum of 15 units, which the city would manage. Mm-hmm. Is that correct?
5: Uh, not necessarily. Okay. Manage might mean...
4: I'm uh, sorry, but you would have access to, to place people from our list of who might be looking for affordable housing do they come through the housing commission and then they would be placed into this unit or would it be not necess- purely for the developer not to necessarily set that right aside?
5: sorry uh, right now the way that the um, units that are in market rate um, buildings that are affordable um, new ones that are coming online there's a uh, wait list that's actually managed by the office of community economic development
4: so by um, the county By the county. Okay.
5: And so it's a public access wait list and they do the income qualification. Okay. So we only manage the wait list for anyone who's in the voucher program or living in our housing.
4: But our voucher program can't be used for this housing because of the flood? Uh,
5: Uh, Not necessarily. The people could move in there with a tenant based voucher potentially but they wouldn't necessarily um, be placed there by us through our waitlist. Okay. they would be searching like anyone else in the community. So they place- would come
4: with their own sort of say payment to say you have to accept this payment and now it's affordable and so I can move in. Right. Okay. Um, and then the PUD also notes that it would either be 15 units dedicated or 15% of the total amount of units. So it could be more, Mm -hmm. uh, depending on what uh, site plan we see from a a future developer or it could be a payment uh, into the fund. That that was why
5: I was asking there because I thought there was a a payment option. And so, yes, that is an option.
4: Correct. I just wanted to, since you were here <laughs> and we all trust and uh, believe in your voice, I wanted to hear it from you. Thank you.
6: Yeah, no problem. I do want to add, because I think it's been mentioned, just real quickly, the thing that can't happen and why it doesn't fall under Jennifer's umbrella as far as affordable housing is because of the flood fringe, it is fair to say that it can't be a LIHTC deal, a 9% tax credit deal, that's correct, yeah, yeah. which is oftentimes how we fund or how Jennifer or other affordable housing agents fund affordable housing because of the restrictions on federal money that money can't be used here to offset it which is why some of the help of the brownfield tiff and other programs to offset the costs are helpful in this situation
4: but it is not true that there will not be sorry double negatives here <laughs> it's okay it is true that there will be affordable housing units attached to this pud
6: correct and it's stated right in the pud okay i clear. just well we yep. just heard a caller who yep. said
4: that we're the comments from the first community engagement ranked affordable housing high and her comment indicated that there would be no affordable housing so i just wanted to correct the record to make sure that everyone understands what we understand which is there will be affordable housing units available in this development because yeah, it's attached the big to the PED. Yeah, the big
6: difference from the original public engagement and comment is if it was feasible, we know the, the primary goal for use of these properties would have been to do 100% affordable housing projects. That does not work on a financing standpoint on this site. It does work on some of the other sites and some of the other sites in combination. On this site, that can't be the driver of the financing of the whole project. But due to what we're able to do and the concepts and other things, we think that the concepts pro forma will allow for the inclusion of that 15% at 60% AMI or less is what we're working towards. Thank you. Yeah.
7: Commissioner Lee.
8: Oh. Thank you. Um, just reprising PUDs in general, um, looking at the UDC, just trying to make sure that we apply this. So permitting flexibility in the regulation of land development, um, encouraging innovation in land use, variety and design layout and type of structures. I, I think that's relatively in line. Achieve economy and efficiency in the use of land, and natural resources, energy, and provision of public services. Encouraging the provision of open space, we have 60% here. Uh, providing adequate housing employment. Um, expanding how, uh, supply for affordable housing, dwelling units, sites with unusual topography, and exhibiting difficult or costly development problems or any combination thereof. Um, PUDs aren't allowed to be used for um, avoiding imposition of standards, um, but rather to, again, serve to uh, achieve the stated purposes above. So to my reading of this, I do believe that it it fits this concept of a PUD. Um, So I think that the approach here makes sense to me. I wanted to have some discussions around the supplemental regulations as we see them here. So this is uh, for the petitioner. Uh, There's a maximum of three bedrooms and two baths. That's something uh, that I saw. And I just wanted to question kind of the thought process behind that, Uh, whether, you know, what's that regulation? uh, Where is that coming from?
2: Um, I um, I don't know if uh, other folks want to jump in, but I'll tell you from a staff perspective, The city has had a lot of development recently a very large unit size five and six Six. bedrooms Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and those are i think that time will tell the flexibility and utility of those to evolve to different uses from a primarily student housing Mm -hmm. and so part of the intention here was frankly to perhaps restrain the development here into a more long-standing model of housing that has, frankly, a longer track track record in a lot of communities as evolving for different uses, maybe for families, for older generations, for younger generations, than a five, six-unit type of prototype. So that was part of the intention, is, um, I guess, to um, use a more familiar, longer-standing model. Gotcha. I don't know if the team wants to add anything else to that
6: i would say exactly that Um, land values in the downtown are driving density at a student housing design set we do not would not and cannot pick and choose who lives in a building we don't care if a student lives in this building or not Um, that's not what we do but we can because we own the land have some impact on the land value and then reduce the number of units or bedrooms per unit to make it a more traditional setting Um, I'm sure students will live in it, I'm sure non-students will live in it, but it was a deliberate attempt to not have in the five and six bedded units through the use of the PUD.
8: Gotcha. Thank you for that response. That helps to clarify. Um, Next I want to talk about the setback regulations, the 20 minimum, um, 40 maximum. And I think I I heard one of the callers talk about uh, you know, maybe it can be closer. So I just wanted to also hear from the petitioner regarding the community discussions that led to the 20 um, minimum setback requirement off of Washington Street. I mean, also off the the holes <laughs> also make sense from that standpoint for remediation purposes. But
3: yeah, so um, maybe we can just go the other setbacks first. That are primarily driven by fire 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 access. Got it. And so it also does help um, you know setback from some of the residential uses adjacent. Um, a lot of discussion, as you can imagine, uh, about the setback off of Washington Street, um, and you can. I would encourage everyone to continue to read everything that we've posted online, because all, all the yeah. notes have, are on there. And um, please hold us accountable for this. If I could summarize uh, some of the comments, uh, generally concern about alienating some of the single-family residential sure. uses that happen along Washington Street. And so mm-hmm. is there something that we can do with the setback here uh, to make that feel uh, more intentional? And so uh, we did then go back and forth between should that be um, uh max you know maximum forty feet should it be a required forty feet setback mm-hmm. which is forty feet is kind of generally in line with the the um, homes the home the home the front the fronts of the homes twenty feet gets you a little bit closer to the kind of fronts of front porches and other things and so you know I think the the discussion that we landed was some flexibility within there they're also to layer on this. Again, these are very complicated. Um, the chimney, the, the chimney, chimney falls within that, right? And so um, uh, we think uh, best practice um, uh, to maximize the opportunity to, uh, to maintain that chimney through construction and give you the best chance for the habitat, for, for swifts to maintain there is to be 40 feet back from the curb because then you can have a chimney that continues to sit proud so th- those mm-hmm. again are the considerations we wanted to have the flexibility because if during the design process there's a discussion uh, that said you know for whatever reason decides that it's infeasible to maintain the chimney then a developer might have some flexibility um, uh, to, uh, um, to to think about something a little bit closer uh, what this did not do was uh, uh, um, a, give you the opportunity to build a building that goes all the way to the, the curb on Washington. Mm-hmm. And so the other, and I don't know, there's a series of <laughs> discussions about this, but the other thing that does is we haven't solved Washington Street, yep. right? There's mm-hmm. a larger discussion yeah. in our community that needs to happen about Washington Street. I was just there with my son at, YM, at the YMCA. Uh, and um, it's you know continues mm-hmm. to be a challenge. And so does additional space <clears> give us the opportunity to think about? How modes travel through that in some way was was the other thought. So, gotcha. I hope that's helpful.
8: (laughs) No, that that definitely answers my question. Thank you. Also, um, activation through a parking lot being kind of up to the streetscape is a little challenging. Um, You could use some kind of different again materiality to create an aesthetic kind of attraction, but um, uh, that that definitely helps. the, six P, uh, the minimum 60% open space, this is actually probably for you as well, uh, does the current site plan currently have, um, is that 60% of what we see? Is that the flood fringe relative to the rest of the site?
3: Um, uh, the 60% includes um, uh, some of the setbacks, uh, includes the floodplain. Uh, it's a little bit less uh, than what we're showing on the kind of potential area plan. but. Um, Again, given the comments about open space and, and given the, the um, discussion of the space in the community, we felt that having that higher percentage of open space here was important and we we're being
8: responsive to the, the, to the community here as well. Gotcha, great, thank you. Last thing is on height limitations at 70 feet. And I think, um, to me, the concept of having parking at the front level, right? Um, so you're, you're at 12 feet, maybe 15, just after materials and et cetera. So, I mean, we're we're basically promoting five over one, right? So we're doing stick-built on a podium deck. So um, were there ever discussions regarding um, do we provide, I mean, is 70 enough for making sure that we have, you know, mechanicals kind of on top, et cetera? So can you kind of lead me through the thinking on the establishment of the 70 feet here or the proposed 70 feet?
3: Yep, it, it was uh, allowing for a 5 over 1 with the additional space uh, needed for uh, floodplain and then the uh, um, uh, components on, on the rooftop here. So uh, it, it uh, was was not able to be accomplished with the 60 feet. So uh, needing the extra space here was important. Um, and um, you know, I think there are still opportunities then to continue, as we've as we said in the setbacks, and require that to kind of step back as you get closer to 3rd Street.
8: Sure. Yeah, for me, a, a diagonal kind of makes sense, some some level of a diagonal restriction, uh, but that allows massing towards actually even higher than 70 feet from my standpoint. Uh, based on everything that I've heard t- tonight, um, it's, it's my opinion that uh, we do – I do not believe that a blighted, contaminating parking lot is the highest and best use of this site. So I think that we do need to take some level of action with respect to this. Um, It seems to, again, fit within the description of the PUD. I do um, hold Jerry Hancock's uh, comments pretty seriously as well with respect to the hazard mitigation plan and its um, contrary nature to it. But again, policy is based on trade-offs. So um, I'm generally in support of what I see here. I would probably push for a little bit of additional height um, to allow flexibility uh, in the event that, uh, again, just looking strictly at five over one, you may be constrained from a height standpoint, maybe you have four floors. So um, yeah, that's basically where I stand. Thank you for uh, my time. Thanks.
9: Commissioner Abrams. Thank you. Um, I wanted to start maybe just by going back to Commissioner Weish's question about payment in lieu versus units on site. So my understanding of what the caller was saying is that um, because payment in lieu is an option, that they are skeptical that there will be units on this site. And that seems like an important clarification because um, I think there are members of our community who would value units on this site, close to downtown, close to public transportation, close to amenities. Um, And so I maybe just wondered um, what the, maybe this is. For you, Jen, um, what you could imagine the consequences might be of not allowing payment in lieu and requiring units on site, and whether that's a possibility or something that there's any precedent for doing.
5: I mean, there's definitely precedent because that's what happens right now. Um, The challenge with the current policy, not just within the brownfield uh, policy, but also with the other zoning requirements, is that it is a, uh, when you look at the Income ranges. Um, I guess I'll step back a bit. So this is something I've studied a lot because it's something I care about a lot. Um, and we looked all around the country for models of mixed income and what works. And when you think about income ranges from you know zero to millionaire, let's just say, so you've got a range. Um, the folks that have studied this say that the closer you are in the closer you are in the range the more successful your housing is gonna be. So if you have, uh, for example, chronically homeless households off the street with other low-income households, that can work, but it doesn't work with moderate to high-income households. And because of the cost of this development and the fact that there isn't a significant amount of subsidy and the fact that we need a taxpaying entity to take advantage of the brownfield uh, TIF, there is going to be higher income households to solve all these other problems like this is not the best site and i say it all the time like this is not the site i'm looking to to solve the affordable housing uh, problem in the city um if there are units that do get included great i mean it'll make will make it work people come off the um uh, wait list you know there's um It's going to be people at the higher end of the income. It's going to be people closer to 60% AMI. It's not going to be folks that are at the lower end of that income range. And um, those folks need housing too. Um, It is not necessarily a model that a lot of developers know how to make work. And so it's harder when you have a uh, market rate developer trying to incorporate those low-income housing units in the management of their project it doesn't mean it can't be done it's done i prefer cash and loo to go towards the lower end folks that are doing affordable housing um, that that's their model those are the people they serve all the time and so i'm in favor of that i would not have a problem if there's units included though we're doing that right now it's not the end of the world
9: thank you (laughs) um no, thank you. So that that perspective and um, your expertise is appreciated. Um, does that clear up your question, I mean, Commissioner if, White?
4: if there's a friendly amendment to the PUD, I'm happy to strike the or if that's what we think is on the table.
9: I'm not proposing that. Okay, I think I, tr- I, tr- I trust I trust the experts who say that that is the best way forward. I just wanted to clarify what the caller I think was referring to, which is that it's like it's possible slash likely that there will not be units think- in this building.
4: I think if we just because you asked, and I have a thought about it. At sixty percent AMI, it's fifteen hundred a month. Roughly,
5: it's people for like a one-person household. is about fifty thousand dollars. Right. Um, it
4: goes up a little bit for each um, household size above that. Yeah. So if, if we're in the sixty percent of AMI, because of our median income ranges, it's not at thirty and it's not at zero. So mm-hmm. When we talk about this as affordability, I think it's important to have that context of what do we actually mean when we say affordability. So when I heard the caller, what I was hearing was, this is just going to be another market rate development that's not gonna have any affordability into it. But my reading of the PUD seemed to say something different. So that's what I was trying to clarify. Um, I appreciate the secondary (laughs) clarification that you are bringing, which is all of that can go away from the units. And I have sat at this table and have advocated, and I do advocate for us having affordable units in our market rate so that we are not concentrating all of the low-income housing in one development or in one part of our community because then that overtaxes our amenities within our city. So we have two Title I schools inside the city because of how the housing is working and where the affordable housing is. And those kids are trapped in some sense in those communities. So like you, I think I would love to see the units in this actual development because it would give those families access to the resources that the higher income stratus just take for granted because of their access to the wealth, so.
9: I mean, one encouraging piece of this puzzle is that this is one of ten sites being looked at by the city for the development of affordable housing, and many of those other nine sites are within blocks of this one, right? So um, let's keep that in mind. So, um, okay, shifting for a minute then, uh, maybe back to setbacks, I wondered about... Uh, I, think I, re- I think I saw correctly that there's a 10-foot maximum setback on Long Liberty, but there's no building proposed at that. So can you help me understand what that means? I don't know. Or is it a typo, like is it a 10-foot minimum?
10: It does say 10-foot maximum. I think that that was originally entitled in case um, there to allow for some flexibility. That may also include any accessory buildings um i wasn't involved with the project directly when when we drafted that section of it not sure if michael has any additional background but that doesn't um
9: <clears throat> but does that mean you have to build up to
10: require within 10
9: feet of liberty yeah. which doesn't work currently with the
10: or yeah I just, yeah it does have a maximum
2: in there so well it would be along that property boundary but i still think yeah. that
9: but there's currently there's a version of this where there's no building right. yeah in that part of the site at all?
2: I think that should be a minimum. Mm-hmm.
9: Yeah. That seems like the intention, maybe? So we can that come would. back to that as a friendly amendment, maybe? Mm-hmm. Okay.
2: Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, mean, I think it's unlikely because of the floodway is yeah. very, makes up most of that. Um, but... I think the intention. I think the intention there should be that it's a ten foot minimum. Minimum that would create a minimum in the event that some development did happen close to that Liberty Street frontage. Um, mm-hmm.
9: okay. yeah.
2: My apologies for that. No, no. no. Uh,
9: well, yeah, and then I guess we could talk about whether ten is the right number to be a minimum if the minimum is twenty on Washington.
2: Oh, it's perfect.
9: Ten is perfect. Okay. Um, and then I had a question just about the definition of street wall when the f- ground level is parking. Um, so this could be for Mr. Kowalski or Mr. Leonard. But um, does the sh- street wall start at the ground even if it's open?
10: Yes. Yes. Yeah. You cut the street wall. It would be for anything that's part of the structure on that, that line, correct? So that would include the, the parking. Okay. Enclosed parking. Well, it's not political. It's not it's, it's right. Go in front of the building. <laughs> covered.
9: It's, it includes the covered part, the first floor of covered parking at yes, 12 sorry, feet. not
10: enclosed, but it goes. It's up considered from that part of the street wall. wall. Correct. Got it. That establishes the street wall.
9: So the minimum of a two-story or three-story street wall includes the parking as yes. one of those stories. Yes. Great. Thank you. Um, those are my clarifying questions for now, and I will um, pause for the moment. Thank you, Commissioner Sove.
11: All right, we're gonna go back to affordable housing. Really, hopefully, really, really. Um, we talked about TIFs. So i might um, being able to have flexibility to cover things like remediation, but it was also alluded to that the TIF might be able to help capture things for affordable housing because tech and other things are not on the table. Is that true?
6: We have not. used TIF and other examples to pay for eligible activities, i.e. public infrastructure. In a greater amount than we normally would agree to if the developer agrees to provide a certain number of units of affordable housing for a certain period of time. So we have bent the program to to meet that goal in the past. Okay. I don't know if that if we'll do that here. We need more detail, but it is possible.
11: Okay, would, would that, hearing that it sounds like it would have to be on site then at that point, that a TIF would never be able to capture something for payment in lieu?
6: I don't know if that's true okay we, we we have used it and it is a very flexible program the developer as part of a reimbursement agreement was willing to pay uh, in lieu for affordable housing and then we found corresponding eligible activities to pay for i don't see why that wouldn't work
11: okay so there is an option in a financial model with the developer that they could bundle a lot more of their TIF to cover tree line uh, remediation and affordable housing and that that affordable housing might go payment in lieu, get compounded by the leveraged areas and other sites in, as well.
6: It is possible. We are, we are pushing the boundaries yep. of 3 <laughs> So far, nobody has pushed back. Yep. We're comfortable saying that public. We've said it publicly. Um, we've gotten the state to sign off on that. The state does sign off on the use of school tax and other jurisdictions to pay back uh, eligible activities. We have more flexibility with our own local taxing jurisdiction, um, but so far, The state has approved the other jurisdictions in similar utilizations.
11: Okay, so I'm going to push a little further. (laughs) And so it's the, the use regarding the PUD has a requirement of affordable housing, but it could be payment in lieu. Otherwise, it's uses in D2. And so right now it's mapped out and assumed to be residential. Uh, and meeting residential guidelines by being on this podium. But there's nothing restricting it, as I see in the Supplemental Regulations, to so this being office space, artist studios, correct?
6: There's nothing that restricts it from being correct. there? Correct.
11: Like if some, if a development partner came along uh, to purchase the property, I imagine like the RFP might have some priorities, you know, if there's different uh, RFPs coming too. But if somebody came along, you know, offer the city you know, 10% above asking rate, they could be
6: Yeah,
2: definitely, it. and that was part of the intention of setting the floor of yep. affordable units so that even if that happened, there's still an affordable housing benefit is going to be realized.
11: Okay. So we, that's how, like, we're, we could realize the benefit offsite. Some of the benefit onsite regarding the PUD could be like the treeline trail and the remediation, but in the end, we might get an office. I just wanna like, like work through all the scenarios to kind of th- think through that option. Um, okay. And then for the tree line, I think that's it for affordable housing. I just had like those two kind of clarifying things.
5: Can I, uh, can I clarify yeah. two things that were discussed tonight? Um, one is that HUD does prohibit um, building anything in a floodway, floodplain, anything flood, flood. Um, like we've literally had properties that had a portion of a site like this strip mm-hmm. that was in the floodway and we had to a land division and uh, essentially donate it to the county drain commissioner, but we still built on the site that HUD just said you can't have a portion of it at all touching Mm -hmm. any part of your site. Um, That is not true for the IRS for tax credit uh, purposes. It's just that the state of Michigan administers a tax credit program and they've decided to adopt similar rules. It's not a federal requirement. Uh, Just to clear that up, I know it's very... Bureaucratic, but and then uh, Donnell about the um, you know the mixing of you know families and opportunities in schools, which I wholly uh, heartedly agree. Um, one of the issues with what has been developed that has included units, they don't tend to be family-sized units, and so it just depends on like you know what ends up being here. Just to be clear.
11: The the easement would be the property is maintained with the developer, and there's a maintenance agreement with the tree line, or it would be donated?
2: To be determined, but part of the public benefit is allocating that space permanently to that use.
11: And that that's going to be developed as part of the project, and then it could be held on the developer, or it could be donated. Like, there's some looseness in there relative to an actual project plan.
2: Yes and no. You'll see that there's minimum standards, a minimum of a 15-foot wide path. I think there's aspirations of the plan for more amenities Mm -hmm. there. So those things could be incorporated at the outset. They could evolve over time. But at a minimum, the public measurable benefit is dedicating the land, building the non motorized path. Okay.
11: Final question is probably for you, which is um, rezoning goes to city council. Yeah. When this project comes back after it's rezoned PUD, would the actual project go to City Council, or would it end here with approval from Planning Commission?
2: It would be a site plan for approval by Planning Commission.
11: Okay. So this is the only chance for City Council to kind of review and understand the impact of this.
2: And so, um, if I could, to the question of options on affordable housing, I I wanted to highlight that. It would be perfectly appropriate for the Planning Commission and or the City Council to say we don't want the option. We want to make sure whether it's an office, whether it's a residential, we want units in that building. Our ordinance recognizes either as a benefit. It says right now that either you can provide units or you can provide a a payment in lieu. We are following that guidance and that regulation in these regulations. And I would just want to be clear, it is yes, that modification could be made, but in the event that that becomes a desire, a pivot point for this project to the wants to seek a payment in lieu versus providing units, then it requires a rezoning. It's not a transaction decision of the city to say, you know, no, we really, as part of our sale, we're going to require you go this option. It would require the rezoning as well. So I just, it can be done, but I I just want to clarify that 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 is part of trying to set the table in a way to uh, the guardrails, as as Mr. Delacorte indicated, as to what the possibilities are. The more those are constrained, the more they're constrained without going through the entire process again.
11: Great. Uh, that's it for me. I think Commissioner Lee actually outlined a lot in terms of the PUD standards, and I wanted to push to the current assumption versus what other options we might see in terms of use, and I still feel like it meets those standards, and I look forward to supporting it.
7: Commissioner Mills.
0: I'm gonna keep on that topic because that's what I often try to do is figure out how what we ultimately see, especially with the concept plan, uh, when we're at the concept plan stage, may not be what we see when we get a site plan. Thanks this side of the table for picking a lot of the things off of my list already. I also want to uh thank the team thank mr johnson for designing a very ugly building on your slide because again people like get tied into what it looks like and i think it's really great that it is a block um so uh the only couple of things commissioner abram's amazing on liberty i also had that um and height um a couple of the things that I picked up on 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 the south side along the south property lines it's the standard says 35 feet what's shown is 40 it, and I don't know if that's not crazy off but I just I just thought I would note it so I don't know if it's not possible if they're if what they really need is 40 feet for any kind of fire lane then I would maybe do that um, I would note, just for everybody, and this was in the staff report and kind of the comparison, it's 68% open space that's shown, even though 60% could be allowed. The bigger difference I think is in the FAR, right? More, And actually, this is more of a question. I didn't see an FAR limitation. Did I miss it? It's 200%. Okay. And
9: well, underlying
0: zoning, yeah. well, I was going to say, like, can we talk about that? Because I don't, uh, I took it to be like so many of the things are with D2. Um, what's shown is 123%. Yeah. Um, and it, there was a note in the staff report that, you know, this is, this is 200, but maybe I missed that part. I didn't actually compare it. It's not, is, is it articulated? That's for staff. on page three of the regulations? Of the supplemental regulations? No limit.
9: Can I, can I clarify? Is that okay? Yep. Uh, yeah. I think it's a D, in D2, the maximum is 200%. So if it's not our specifically limited in the supplemental regs, the D2 zoning applies, right?
10: Right, the underlying standards of the D2. But we could, add it, we could certainly add it into the regulations, specifically. But it is, it, it's meant that these were the additional standards, so anything else is subject to the D2 regulations. That's not called out.
0: Got it. Okay, so that's where there's the biggest gap. And actually, I'm glad that we talked about that. So that's the biggest gap that I see in terms of what we saw in, in the blocky building and what could come back. And so I guess the question is, is that even attainable? Like, what would that, what would that look like? Because my sense is that it is actually not, it's the situation where you're not preserving the chimney. There's something wrong with the chimney. And so you're building up to two, to 20 feet rather than 40 feet. And that's how you get more FAR. But I just don't know where, where else on the site. Cause it seems, you know, like
4: yeah yeah i
3: mean maybe just uh, i don't have the exact numbers in front of me but the calculations that we've done with the setbacks that we're proposing you can't get to 200 percent far okay building a res building a residential okay building
0: got it and some of that is also because of the uh, additional setbacks uh, from the West Side properties. And, right. Like and, and we can't build in, in
3: the floodway and, and all of those kind of things. Right? Okay. So
0: all right. Super. Um for what it's worth on the Washington side, like I I really appreciate the flexibility. Um because at least in the one and and I'm there every day <laughs> twice a day or more. Um I mean twenty feet will feel like so spacious compared to what the current situation is. And 40 actually feels a little bit far, um, considering what's there. And I I appreciate like seeing what it looks like and, and, and that it's scaled so that you are right up against the chimney <laughs> um, in case that is to be preserved. But I would also just say, I'm really glad that there's a there's some flexibility there um i think that oh the only other thing that just got brought up which is about the public benefits in 2b so and um where it's talking about the treeline trail and a non-motorized path uh right now in the bit uh, between felch and the fish park which i don't know what that's is there is um I don't it's it's wood chips. And I want to make sure that this is not wood chips. Would wood chips count as for to be as effectively building a fifteen foot wide non motorized path? Like
2: as it's written now, it's up to us to decide. So it would be for us to set that expectation. Um, city specifications. My non-engineering um, expertise would say that it probably couldn't be um, because if this is going to be part of public infrastructure, it's going to have to meet ADA.
0: Okay. And my recollection of the of the wood chipped part that I'm thinking of was that that was the easement. It wasn't actually like building it's an up. the additional, yeah. right? Okay. I just want to make sure. I'll go on the record by saying let's not wood chip it. Like, um, I don't,
2: yeah. The language now would be you putting your faith in the city to approve the right specifications. <laughs>
0: well, I don't want to write what the specifications are right now. And again, it, it's not, I, we shouldn't write concrete, right? Like maybe there's, I don't, I don't know what that is, but not wood chipped, non-motorized path. Um, would be the only amendment that i would offer but i'm not actually going to offer that i'm going to trust that saying this i put my faith in the city um and will happily support be the friendly amendment to the liberty minimum maximum to minimum minimum to maximum i can't remember maximum to minimum
8: maximum to minimum
0: amendment
4: okay
6: yeah, So sorry. many staff here. We're going oh, to just bombard you. It, it's going to. I would assume Michael and I were talking that the construction of it will be part of the final site plan approval, though, as well. So you will see that when the site plan comes back. Um, okay. What the final construction and the final uh, uh, configuration of that is. Got it. And so materials. I will.
0: Should I still be on Planning Commission at that time? Because I just love spending my Tuesday nights here. Uh, <laughs> I will I will make sure it's not wood chips
6: yeah.
0: <laughs> that's true that's true okay. thank you
7: mr. Clark is that a hand
12: yeah. um, just a quick question about the setback if there is some discretion like if the chimney Swift you know we mentioned that and going down to 20 is there really any drawback on Washington going to 10 feet since the bridge that's right there the sidewalk is already like kind of right up against the street there. And so the street wall is kind of continuous where it is in the existing building footprint. I'm wondering if the opening up of that, like in the case that we did get a 20-foot setback there, might kind of change the um, enclosure of the road a little bit and opening it up and then increase traffic speeds to that bridge, which then kind of puts the pedestrian right at the edge anyway. So I guess I'm just curious if there's any way that there's staff discretion if we were to change it to say like you know 10 foot minimum setback on West Washington, but then if there was a plan that you know the chimney sweeps and the, you said the interaction between chimney sweeps at 40 foot, um, I don't know if there's any contingency room there for the plan on the setback.
2: What might think that? Well, the short is it could be crafted in whichever way we desire. Again, the this is trying to strike a balance of There's a lot of factors. Like I think that's a great observation. It's a pretty tight urban to the street, you know, experience as you head east. But we also heard a lot of community feedback about responding more to the residential properties to the west. Um, So to bring to if if we were to say a 10 foot, I think that that would harshen that transition there to bring that building tighter to the street there. if you wanted to sort of tighten the experience i I think it is also going to have minimal impact because so much as you head east is not going to be building anyhow because that's the floodway where the tree line is going to be, so you're really only talking about that portion sort of roughly equivalent to where the building is now anyhow um, so that's a long way of saying if if you wanted to do it, I would still you'd have to find the balance of that transition i think that the it i mean as mr johnson said we did there was a lot of discussion about it but this seemed like a reasonable balance sort of referencing both the porches the the line of that home and some flexibility for that chimney in the swift habitat
7: any other questions I have one about the floodplain um, in the supplemental regulations it says that the finished floor needs to be a foot above the you know five hundred year point two percent however when mr. Johnson was speaking he talked about it being the the finished floor being like 12 feet up so I'm just curious like have you all kind of thought about what that would be I would be I feel like if it's only a foot above it's problematic in terms of sort of what i'm seeing with grades it's like your 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 car parking would be digging down in there which i think would not be smart um i don't think we want a hole no. <laughs> you know we don't know no. draw the there water no digging. No digging. so no, and, and 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 it seems like you know part of the issue for folks calling in is the whole thing around safety and getting people you know out of these these um being out of harm's way. And, you know, if this is indeed 12 feet above, like you were alluding to, you're starting to hit the finished floor of what the buildings are halfway up Washington Street. You know, so in other words, you're way, way above, like there are many other houses underwater before this thing would flood. Yes. Um, And so I'm just wondering if, do we want to be a little bit more, do we want to give them the freedom to set it and you know if I'm I, these aren't perfect in terms of looking at the city's GIS and stuff like that but it looks like you know the 500 years about at 50 or 804 ish 804.5 or something like that that means the finish floor would only be 805.5 which is again if you're digging down to be able to get cars under, there's no way you're gonna have the clearance you know to be able to park cars under there without digging a hole so I'm just wondering do we want to tie ourselves to this one foot above the 500 year thing when that may set up something that we don't really want in terms of how the site design
6: works Well, i'm going to lean on staff but i think the one foot above 500 is the regulation right that's the ordinance that's, yeah, it's, that's it's, the it's, we're, we are tied to it; it's not a choice um we are holding ourselves to the same standard we would hold any other residential development in the flood fringe Um, Part of the debate about this is is certainly Mr. Hancock's memo, and Mr. Hancock is the city expert on this, is supportive of the aspirational goals of the Hazard Mitigation Plan. Um, That plan in action, per the Planning Commission and City Council, is the adoption of regulation, similar to the Master Plan and the Zoning Ordinance. There's a lot of things in the Master Plan the Planning Commission and City Council wishes they could enforce on development when it came forward, but if it's not codified in an ordinance, it becomes very difficult. Where Mr. Hancock is correct here is that the city owns the site and we could choose to do it on our own. What we have chosen to do in recognition of the balance of everything we've talked about tonight is that agreed to meet a minimum of that one year above 500 because it is the ordinance requirement. Um, We think there has been a lot of discussion from the city's floodplain staff, city council, the planning commission in setting that level saying although no development in the flood fringe is the best case scenario this regulation, the one foot above the 500-year floodplain, is safe for residential development in the floodplain um, or else it wouldn't be adopted code in the city. Um, If it's not safe, then I would suggest that we'd look at changing what our regulations are to allow it. So, but to go lesser than that is I think what's your question and I use it as an opportunity to make a comparison, but I wouldn't suggest going lesser than that. By any no, I'm
7: not saying Oh, okay, I mean, then
6: I, then I, I, I missed the question. Yeah, time. I think we'll you know what I'm talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, what did I mean? So, so we did,
7: I'm we going, did a lot of, I'm, going, I'm saying going higher oh, okay. than that, not going less yeah, than got, that. Okay. Because if we go at that point, then we're digging out underneath this thing to be able to put parking yeah, underneath to, to, it, which is
8: yeah,
3: what we yeah, don't, okay. don't okay. want. So surprised it's
6: so No, no,
7: that's I'm saying, the opposite.
3: We did look at the latest maps that that we had access to which um we and we, we went through this with jerry and with others um, because the site slopes from right. liberty to washington the 500 year floodplain is actually eight a 810 8, to 812 on this site oh, because wow. of the interpolation. So that's where we set our baseline. Got it. We think that the building then can sit, or the the parking can sit at 800, which is about sure. level with Washington, with the and then you still yep. have to be 12 feet above that. But yep. it, it's because of the slope from Liberty to Washington. And we had to do some interpolation in yep. there, and we gave ourselves a little bit of extra flexibility. But that's kind of where we landed on okay. the, the 812 okay. and the 500, You know. The, um, one foot above 500. Okay, so, so I hope we're, that's helpful. We're,
7: we're stuck. Okay, I th- that, it, that's fine. If, yeah. is, if we're up at you know the 812, then I'm a lot more comfortable yeah. with setting it lower. Because if just looking at the GIS stuff that's here, which I get it is not as sophisticated as <laughs> what you guys are looking at, um, then I was like, I don't want to dig down deeper no, to absolutely. be able to get cars underneath yeah. there. So okay, alrighty. If, if we're up there, then we're basically up at the Y like it's kind of it's, it's, it's comparable yeah, to what, what's going I on there that's yeah, good,
3: yeah, yeah. a good benchmark for yeah.
7: yeah
0: yes your observation helped me find potentially we don't we're not explicit in the regulations that any vehicle vehicular parking should be underneath a building even though that's what we're seeing and i'm curious if we want to put a limitation it, even either if we want to require that any parking is under a building or if we wanna put a limitation on the number of parking spots that may be not under a building. And, and the, yeah, and the thinking that I have is that maybe we do want to allow for some surface parking, I mean, I, if we are gonna allow it at all, the only place that I could imagine that it makes sense is like right next, if there's an access point for the tree line or something like that. Otherwise, like, I would really not like to see surface parking here. Like, and so that's not the wisest use of the space. But there's nothing in here that re- that prohibits that right now. So I'm curious what staff thinks about, yeah.
2: Well, There are some building code regulations, like campus parking in the floodway. Um, it's a balance. I... I think that the the potential to develop this is going to necessitate that. I just don't think that there's room um, to provide surface parking and probably get to a viable project. So, um, so I guess from that lens, you could include it. But again, I, I guess I'm of the mind that we have regulations that address that. We are capping parking in this circumstance, which is something unique to other things. I think, um, I think that, you know, it's, I just think that that's getting pretty specific. And again, this is a concept plan. You know, this is, could be realized in a different way. Um, I, I don't think it's a concern. I don't think that there's gonna be a lot of opportunity to do surface parking and meet any sort of reasonable return to get to a viable
12: project.
7: Commissioner Clark, did you have a question or comment?
12: Well, Brett's answer kind of cleared off, I was just gonna come say I would agree with what you just said about limiting um, parking that's not underneath the building. Um, And then I am just gonna be annoying and real quick just uh, mention that the setback thing, and if we're talking about flexibility, I guess I would uh, again kind of mention that offering this flexibility of maybe a slightly less uh, setback might be, um, I don't know if it will have any consequential impact, but it might be worth considering, especially because looking at Google Maps and doing measuring of the houses all next door, there's only one house on Washington, all of it, that has that almost 40-foot setback. And then everything, um, I also am looking at other parking where there's podium like parking underneath, and those are all right up against the sidewalk consistently with the rest of town. So I guess I'm just not sure why um, this is the one area that we've decided. And I guess I'm worried about um, the effect of it being on a pedestrian, having to walk by a building that might be recessed, if I'm understanding correctly, like with parking kind of underground, and then a building above um, that has kind of a bunch of dead space in front of it. Um, And being that the trail is already there, it also kind of might not be the most efficient point um, to move the building back, people using the building, getting in and out, adding that extra 40 feet of space if it's not for the benefit of preserving the uh, chimney sweeps. Um, I guess I would just say I'd want to add I'm an advocate. I would say I'd be in favor of maybe adding discretion to like 10 feet um, and letting staff maybe work.
2: Well, while you're thinking, um, I just want to so when, then when a site plan comes in and if it meets that 10 foot, then it, that would meet the standard. So I, I would just say that if, that if that was expanded to be a 10 to 40- foot range instead of a 20, I just want to be clear right now, any plan that comes in is going to, the answer is going to be yes, that meets the front yard setback with, within that 20 to 40 foot range. If you change that to 10 to 40, that is going to provide more flexibility, but as far as staff figuring that out, I just want to be clear: what if a site plan comes in that's consistent with that? We're going to find that it's consistent with that. So, um, so it wouldn't we wouldn't have we wouldn't have the discretionary opportunity that that at that point, if a private developer was coming in with a site plan and said, "I want to do a 10 foot setback," and we say, "Well, I know we said 10 foot, but we really didn't mean it." Um, so we, I just want to be clear, we wouldn't have that ability to sort of figure that out. We would have just made that decision and that would be permissible.
12: So a quick clarification, what's the setback on the chimney, because it was mentioned earlier about the way the chimney would interface with, and I thought that was at yeah, 40 a, or?
2: About 40.
10: Yeah, it looks a little bit in front of the 40, probably Pro- 35. Approximately 50.
3: 40.
12: So what, where does the 20 come from then?
3: 20 is uh, approximately our interpolation of the, the front uh, homes along, the three homes along Washington.
12: So there's three homes out of the entire length of Washington that don't have, and then those porch, according to Google Maps, it's a 10 foot um two of them, and then the other one has 30. Of course, it's not perfectly accurate, but the houses on Washington, even to the west, have a closer than 20 foot setback. I'm just pointing that out. So the 20 seems rather arbitrary, and that, that's all I'm saying. So if there's, I mean, if we're gonna say 40 foot for the chimney sweeps, I would say that's 40 foot for the chimney sweeps, but then going to 20 feet, Why 20 feet, not 10 feet? Um, And I just worry about in the future, if those three homes that are slightly further back, uh, they're all older, Um, I'm not sure if they're under the historic district or not, but if they're ever redeveloped, um, with the building next to it setting precedent of being further back, are we not just asking to resuburbanize this whole block to this 30, 40 foot setback, and there's already a lot of open space with the trail? that's my my concern especially creating a wide open visual corridor entering downtown where there there's a bridge then with the railroad tracks it's never going anywhere so it's naturally people are going to be right on the corner there so i almost wonder about like um yeah that's my only thing is the 20 feet seems rather arbitrary with we have we have a long agenda so i don't want to hold up us up too long but
7: <laughs> commissioner Sove. <laughs>
11: I'll just say I'm comfortable with it in kind of conversation about the redevelopment looking at the 500-year floodplain line uh, and that those would also be like those sites because the flood uh, zone kind of passes through there they'd be held to the same one foot above standard which if you kind of interpolate from that line they'd be kind of back where they're at when I'm looking you know at this site plan uh, so like it would it'd be very difficult for those homes to be redeveloped closer to the street as well because of how they have to also meet the floodplain standard of one foot above. So if we're, if we're thinking about you know, the whole fabric in the future, this is probably consistent with where the, that, that building fabric would actually end up. Um, but I really appreciate the comments.
7: Anybody else?
4: Just, uh, are we gonna do the friendly amendment to switch
2: the maximum to minimum? Thank you, Commissioner Weich. I was just about to suggest, um, I heard a one proposed amendment to amend the Liberty Street setback to a 10-foot minimum rather than a maximum. I heard references potentially to adjustments to the Washington Street setback height and elimination of one option of affordable housing. I didn't hear a lot of momentum for any of those latter three. So what I am hearing is a motion might be in order to modify to the 10-foot minimum rather than maximum along Liberty. I'll
1: move
9: that.
2: All right. Yeah. Oh yeah, I got to do that. Yep. Yeah. Commissioner Lee. Yes. Yeah. Commissioner yeah. Clark. This is on
9: the
12: amendment.
2: Uh, just on the amendment, yes, yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. Thank you, yeah. Commissioner yes. Clark. Yes. Commissioner Weich? Yes. Commissioner Gibrandle?: Yes. Commissioner Abrams? Yes. Commissioner Sobey? Yes. Commissioner Mills? Yes. Commissioner Dish? Yes. All right. Back to the motion as amended. Are we ready for that as well?
12: hmm
2: Commissioner Lee? Yes. Commissioner Clark? Yes. Commissioner Weich? Yes. Commissioner Gibrandle? Yes. Commissioner Abrams. Yes. Commissioner Sove. Yes. Commissioner Mills. Yes. Commissioner Dish. Yes. Congratulations, applicant. Next up, City Council.
6: <laughs> <laughs>
7: All right. We are on to item number nine, which is um, or nine A, which is the downtown zoning review and discussion of downtown. I'm yes. getting interrupted.
0: Sorry, do no. we have to vote to take up something? New, something like it's 11. 11. Oh,
7: it's 11? Yep. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this feels like an old planning committee meeting. I like yeah, it. I know. like the good old days. That's right. All right. So we are on to the downtown zoning review and discussion of downtown zoning outcomes and premiums.
4: please your
7: microphone? Sure. Sorry about that. So we are on to the downtown zoning review and discussion of downtown zoning outcomes and premiums.
2: Um, if I could just uh, introduce, um, we are being joined by uh, uh, Megan and Ben from Carlisle Wartman Associates and Alexis from the Crack City Planning Team. Uh, Mr. Kahn, I think, might be joining us eventually here uh, remotely as well. Uh, on your work program is revisiting the downtown premiums uh this is uh, an opportunity for a presentation of some research that uh carla Wortman associates has done uh to get this going um just to set the stage as you recall premiums have been in uh, in effect in the city for a very long time a surprising long time um, we might hear that history here That a date that they know and I don't. Um, It has evolved over time to include different things, different approaches, including uh, energy efficiency provisions and affordable housing and regular, just the provision of housing. In 2019, um, modifications were made to those uh, premiums and since that time, we have not had residential projects um, proposed in the downtown. Those changes went from a residential premium and a super quote unquote affordable housing premium um, to a uh, affordable and residential premium which required a more graduated approach. So um, we're hoping to give you some uh, feedback, some learnings from other communities, some data analysis and hopefully um, we are interested to hear your thoughts on how they should head off in the directions to present ideas and concepts for potential amendments to you
13: thank you good evening or almost good morning at this point but um, <laughs> good good evening um I'm Ben Carlisle with Carlisle Warman Associates, and with me tonight is my colleague Megan masson also from Carlisle Warman Associates. Um, I've had the pleasure of working with many of you in the past, and uh, for those I haven't worked with, uh, I look forward to working with you on this project moving forward. Um, Just a little bit of background about Carlisle Warman: We are an urban planning firm uh, located here in Ann Arbor. Our office is downtown. uh, So Ann Arbor and the downtown is literally in our backyard, and so obviously we have a very vested interest in both this process as well as the city as a whole. As uh, the director uh, lettered uh, noted, uh, we've been hired by the uh, department to complete an evaluation of the premium program and the downtown recommendations for the city. Um, We anticipate that we will meet with this group multiple times over uh, the course of this year to come up with um, downtown zoning reports. Uh, report back on feedback we've heard from stakeholders, and ultimately come back with some uh, uh, proposed changes, perspective changes to the downtown zoning and downtown premiums. I wanna note that we come in here with no preconceived notion about what those results will be we come in with a blank slate and really are hearing from uh, this body as well as other stakeholders in the community in terms of what we need to be done to address downtown zoning. Um, The purpose of tonight's meeting really is to deliver some of our initial feedback and findings and then have an exploratory conversation uh, with this group. We have a um, very short, hopefully, presentation because we really are intent on hearing tonight from you um, with regards to your feelings on some of our feedback and direction moving forward as we start to develop this, this program moving forward. Um, just a little background about downtown premiums um, for the city. Uh, downtown premiums were actually adopted almost 60 years ago uh, by the city of Ann Arbor. So they've had a long history uh, with this with this community. Um, over time, uh, they have evolved, and the intent always really was to incentivize specific goals and policies and development practices that we wanted to see in the downtown. But like anything, um, over the last 60 years, those have changed and evolved as the city's policies and goals and visions have also changed. Um, The last change was in 2019, and these uh, uh, in front of you are the current premiums. And I wasn't involved in the 2019 amendments. My assumption is that they were amended and changed to reflect at that time what the goals and policies uh, were of the city. Um, just for a little background, I'm sure the commission is well aware of what the premiums are. But just for those at home that, that may not be as familiar with it. Uh, there are essentially five current, what I would call, buckets of potential premiums that are there currently in the ordinance. Um, the first bucket uh, is uh, affordable housing, affordable residential units. Um, and this is in the D1 and D2 only. And there's really three tiers to meet those uh, premiums. And they, they evolve or they change or they increase as the more um, uh, affordable housing uh, is provided on the site. The second tier Uh, is green buildings and uh, again those are three different tiers based on the level of LEED certification you provide for the building or the site. The third um, bucket is historic preservation where you get a 50% uh, bonus or 50% um, uh, FAR bonus with the preservation of historic resource. The fourth bucket is a pedestrian amenity and this only applies to the C1, C1AR. Uh, and the D1 and this is a very, a pretty small uh, premium increase but it does allow that for um, a provision of a pedestrian amenity. And lastly is um, public parking and this only applies to the D1 and that allows up to 200% with public parking um, on site. So those are the current premiums set forth in your current ordinance and again this has not changed or evolved since 2019. Um, we're going to talk a lot about FAR and height as part of this process. There are some other items that have come up, and one of the speakers addressed the other, some of the other items that may come up with this. But right now, we're really focusing on FAR and height. And it's important that we all kind of have a background or understanding of what the current district allows and what the premium can get you up to as well with the height. So in the D1 right now, um, the, max, the, the allowable FAR by right is 400%. You can get up to 900% with those additional premiums I noted earlier, but the maximum height is 180 feet. Um, in D2, your base density, your base FAR is 200%. Um, you can go up to 400% with premiums and a height of 60 feet. Um, this is traditional with, with most down down zoning. And, and, um, And land use policy, kind of throughout the country and throughout history of zoning, you allow your densest, most intense, highest development in your downtown, and as you kind of move out from the downtown, your height, your density, intensity lowers. Um, With some of the changes to your current zoning provisions and the adoption of your new TCI, you've we flipped that a little bit, right? So your C1, your C1A, your base density, your base FAR is 200 and 300 percent. That's at or equal or higher than your by right D2 downtown zoning district. Um, and there's no height limit in those districts too. So you can go taller than the 60 feet that's allowed in the D2. Similarly, um, the, the, the recently adopted TC1, there's no underlying base density cap or FAR cap. There's no height restriction. So we've flipped the long-standing Historically, um, uh, way we've zoned and done land use policy in American cities where we have the densest development in your traditional downtown, your traditional D1 or D2, and we've flipped it a little bit by allowing for larger density and larger just by right outside the city. And that's important to understand that context as we talk about the premiums, as we talk about zoning changes moving forward. Um, in order for us to better understand kind of where we are now and to, to assist the city moving forward, we did review some of existing documents. Um, we spent a lot of time with your existing plans and policies. The downtown has a long history of planning, right? So we, we studied all those and studied the policies. Um, we are not in the position to readdress or, or re-review those policies, but what we are want to do is we want to make sure that your premiums and the premium discussion in your downtown zoning is consistent with those current policies and make sure that there's an alignment between those two. Um, we reviewed all the projects in the downtown that have been built. We focused kind of on a breaking line of 2019 before, and 2019 after. 2019 was, a, was an interesting year for many reasons. One is the last time we updated the, the, the premiums. And two, it's, it's the, the, you know, the start of the pandemic and retail uh, shifts and market shifts, et cetera. Um, there's some patterns we've noticed over the time, the shift and changing in your zoning and in your, in your premiums and how that's related to development in the downtown. And we'll share that too. Um, we reviewed market data again. We kind of use 2019 as a breaking point between pre and post uh, 2019 with regard to market data, and there's some sh- some changes in shift that reflect in the, in the downtown development. With that, um, we also review best practices for similar communities. Uh, we did, uh, I believe it was 18 different communities. That list was put together by us, as well as in collaboration with staff in terms of what communities they felt that we should, we should use. And there were, again, interesting findings out of that in terms of what other communities use and what they didn't use and some successes or failures they've had as a result. And lastly, um, we've done some interviews. Um, we've done interviews with elected officials, uh, city staff, uh, DDA staff, and we are uh, also setting up interviews with other stakeholders such as property owners, developers, um, other city commissions and other city groups, as we move forward to get their feedback input. And we will keep bringing that feedback to you as we uh, have more of those interviews. Um, Megan is going to go into a lot more detail on these points, but just as a high level what we currently found. The downtown zoning and the premium implementation is not currently consistent with the city's visions and goals. And Megan can go into more detail about that. Um, one of the biggest change was in 2019 about the affordable premium. Um, it's been used very sparingly and has not been really used often and effectively uh, with regards to, your, to the current uh, development in downtown. Obviously, the market is still in flux. We're seeing that. I'm not sure we have an answer as to what the future of that market is going to be. But currently, the market definitely is in flux. And that's reflective of both the data we found as well as interviews we've had with, with, with stakeholders. Um, we also want to share that with other communities, there are other communities that use very similar incentives that the city of Ann Arbor uses. And there's some communities that simply don't have any incentives and they don't have um, any sort of bonuses they give out. And they simply they just have a, a, a FAR that's free and, and you can go as high and tall as you want um, based on other factors. So with that, I'm going to stop. Is there any questions on what I've presented so far? Okay, I'm going to hand over to Megan, who's going to go into a little more detail on, on some of that information I provided.
14: Thanks, Ben. Um, actually, this is my third time talking about premiums with Ann Arbor's Planning Commission. Because um, in 2014, I worked for a different firm, and we were charged with doing community engagement about it. Um, then, um, and actually, Commissioner Lee um, did SketchUp models for that at that point in time. Um, so. Um, But then in 2017 was also a hire to come back and then do amendments, and I met a number of you at that time, so um, thanks for having me back. Um, The purpose of tonight is to give you a snapshot of history and whatnot, and the next steps are that we'll ask you to develop in in another meeting, not tonight, um, a menu of options that you want us to go and explore with stakeholders. Um, So we'll need from you what those options are and who those stakeholders are. Go out and get feedback, and then based on that, then to start to make decisions about whether zoning ordinance amendments are necessary, what those should be, what you're looking for them to do, and what's the objectives. Um, But let's ground us in a little history to start off with. So in 1966, the first premium was um, introduced here in the city of Ann Arbor, and that was a pedestrian premium. Um, And it laid out about three different ones, and I'm not gonna go into them. Um, and on this timeline that's um, in this, on the screens, the bold font are major changes. The regular font are tweaks that happened, and Alexis did a great job in terms of summarizing those and what they are through history. And those were attached to the back of our report, which was in your packet. Um, in 1994, residential premium was introduced, um, but, and then talking to Jeff Kahn and Alexis, um, really didn't result in much, um, and then, in the early 2000s, city of Ann Arbor started to do a lot of planning around the downtown um, and there was a lot of focus on residential we don't have enough residential downtown um, as well as some other things and so that led to the two thousand and nine amendments that had affordable housing, green building, public public parking, historic preservation, in addition to the pedestrian and the residential premiums. So then you have a very long laundry list of options for developers. Um, and then, as you'll see in future slides, it had a result. Um, and actually, some of those results were the reason that I, my firm was brought in to talk to the public about it because we actually there was some pushback um, by the amount of building that was happening and the type of building. Um, but also based on that success, um, in two thousand nineteen, we we're not getting the affordable housing that we want. So, what if we use the success and combine them and see what we get? But when you look at how things shake out over time, um, and these are these are different projects that happened in the downtown. Um, the blue is premiums, the orange is no premiums. And I just want to clarify that sometimes the no premiums may be because of the location of the site. If it's in a floodplain or in a historic district, as it was discussed earlier in your previous case, doesn't qualify for premiums. So that doesn't necessarily mean that somebody didn't choose it. It might mean that it was the spot where they wanted to develop, it wasn't eligible. But as you can see, 2009, there was a break point and actually no, and then and then things seem to go up, and then things seem to adjust. But there's not a lot of patterns here. Um, and so then what we did is also we looked at um, ESRI market analyst, and we used the outline of your D1 and your D2 districts. Um, and using that data, which is data that's synthesized from the census, so there is some problematic with it. Um, it wouldn't be as good as your building permits or your water, or your, you know, your water hookups or things like that. Um, but just looking at a rough clarification of okay, how, how did the downtown grow in terms of residential? And I wanted to point out in 2004, the Downtown Residential Task Force set a goal that by 2015, they wanted 1,000 new housing units, and actually by 20, I think, 30, to have 1,500. Um, so you didn't quite reach that per this data um, by 2015, but in 2020, you did. It's over 1,000 units. Um, And according to this data, you can see in 2010, the the slope of that line goes up. Um, So Now, there's all these things going on in the economy and things like that, but it's an indicator that maybe that change in policy was something that helped to drive those. Um, And then if you think about what was happening then, that's when a lot of the first student housing buildings went up, um, was around that time. Um, We divided these into buckets of five years in terms of whether people use premiums or not. Um, It was pointed out to me when you had the break that maybe um, we should go back and parse this data by the policy changes dates and we can do that. Um, So at the end here, um, if you have a data request or things like that, please let us know so we can bring that back to the next discussion when we're talking about what the menu of options are and what stakeholders are. So we wanna give you the information that would help you best make that decision. I think what's also interesting is if you look at which premiums were used. So this is residential is the blue, um, green is the orange and affordable housing is the gray. Um, And just want to note that some projects use both, so especially the 2018 to 2022, that blue and the gray, those probably have both, especially any ones that are post-2019, and again we can split these up the other way, but what really sticks out is that the green building and the affordable are much less used than the residential. Um, and pre-2019, there was a super bonus for affordable, it could go up to 900 FAR. Um, and I remember sitting, that was the main question in 2014, 2017, is why isn't this being taken? Um, and at that point in time, when talking to developers, some of it was that it's really difficult to finance, it's difficult to manage, it's difficult to find the clients. Um, and when I talk about the interviews, we actually had some of that same feedback from those folks and. At this point. So one of the things you always do in good planning is you look at your policies and are your goals aligned and are they matching. Um, And the thing I want to point out to you with this table is um, it starts in 2003 and ends in 2020 going top to bottom. And so if you can and on, on the top are the premiums so and then going down Those are all the plans and we put a check as if it had a goal or a policy that explicitly asked for one of these things that the premiums um, reward. Um, And you can see as you go down through time, after 2013, what the premiums are asking for isn't aligning as much or less frequently um, than previously with what the premiums reward. So then that always says, is there something to look at here with changing the zoning in order to implement, in order to, in order to get what the city's looking for. And the city's changed what those incentives have been before. When we looked at market data, and so this was primarily as uh, Ben indicated post-2019, um, you have a high vacancy op- office rate right now in the downtown. Um, it's not as high as it was in the recession, but it's still high. Um, and then that downtown mix, when you compare it to other downtowns, you have a higher office percentage and a lower residential than a lot of other college town downtowns. Um, and also everything we read and everything we, everyone we talked to said this market is still in flux. And it probably is not going to calm down for another couple of years. Um, but more residential downtown is desirable, again, because of that mix. Um, and then also if your office is not filling up, then you don't have customers for your retail. And then if you have residents, then they can provide that vibrancy in order to support the, the retail, the stores, the restaurants. Um, but what your current policies are delivering in terms of residential downtown is low-rise luxury residential. In terms of what other communities are doing, um, they do incentivize affordable housing in their downtowns, um, mixed use developments, sustainability green building, public transit and reduced driving, which something has never been on Ann Arbor's list um, in terms of what the premiums were. Um, And then also adaptive reuse, which I think could be related to historic preservation, but maybe not in the same way. Um, I would say they're cousins. Um, so what we did is we did a scan of these downtowns and looked at them, and then there was, an in again, in the appendix of our report, there were some descriptions of each one. What we haven't done, and we can do, in the scope of this project, is start to call and research those communities to see which ones were um, what folks there felt it, how it was effective, and if there were any lessons learned, um, but we wanted to do that scan first and also talk to you before we started to do that research and then finally we had the we had interviews um, and again, across the board, every single person we talked to said the downtown zoning is not implementing the current plans and policies in their opinion, um, also that that affordable housing premium was difficult to implement um, you had to people had to verify the had to verify the incomes of the potential folks to take the market rate units there's some market rate there are some affordable units in market rate buildings that are sitting empty right now sometimes that housing that's in the market rate buildings is not designed for someone who is operating at a 30 40% AMI it doesn't have the amenities and things that they need um, so that's not aligned. Um, again, from those interviews, we heard the market's still in flux. Also, heard about that there's such a strong demand for student housing, and that inflates or skews the property prices. Um, and so, there's always this competition or tension there in terms of student housing versus market rate housing versus affordable housing, and then the base price of the property is being driven by that student housing. Um, And then everyone we talked to said, felt that the zoning should change. But that's really your job, um, and we want to talk to you about it. Um, So our questions, and I'm gonna defer to the chair to do this, is um, to advise in the best way. But we really want to know from you just right now reactions in terms of what actions do you want to explore to amend the downtown zoning? And also I want to emphasize leaving it the same is a valid choice. Um, what additional data or research do you need in terms of the projects? Um, I just want you to know we have a very, very big spreadsheet. Alexis um, did a lot of the work of getting it together instead um, of so Brent with the e that we have the projects by their approval date um, and um, a number of different things. So we can sort in a a number of different ways uh, in terms of that. Um, But also hearing from you what stakeholders should be consulted. Um, So with that, I'd be happy to answer any questions and would love to hear your opinions on um, what's the best way to move forward with this process.
7: Go ahead, Commissioner Weich.
4: Um, One thing uh, in answering your second question, what additional data or research is needed, it was interesting to me in your report that you didn't talk about the uh, political landscape in the city uh, as an overlay uh, to what happened in the downtown. And so I wonder if that was intentional, if you were directed by staff, not no, no shame or anything, but just in terms of because uh, when I look at the data, I think the statement, you said that there were no patterns. And when I look at the data, I see a pattern. Okay. And so, and I think that's because of the political um, landscape that was present in the city and, and how that has changed. And so that didn't show up in your data. So I didn't know if that was an intentional choice or uh, it was out of scope. But if you are going to overlay anything else on the data, I'd like to see the political landscape be overlaid as well because I think that had as much an impact on what got built in the city um, as anything.
14: Um, Thank you just wanted to emphasize that that was not um, an explicit choice on our part um, and it was not by no means directed by staff um, but that's definitely something that we could um, add in and look at in terms of changes of administration and council and trends at that point
7: Commissioner Sove
11: like a really great bundle of things on the agenda today that somehow blend into each other um but uh d2 like seeing the map of d2 which i think is very substantially in the floodplain um so it can never actually achieve any of the premiums and you know i think working with all the staff in terms of those objectives and where they might meet or not would be really helpful um to see you know where the comprehensive plan has said D2 should go, where it currently is, where the floodplain go, like, are there any eligible D2 sites and and where they are would be really helpful data um, to to look at to really understand. And maybe I guess that's with the graphs and things was really helpful to see like the 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 ones that didn't use the premiums. If you could unpack, didn't because ineligible versus didn't by choice. Okay. Um, and if there was a break point that it was more ineligibility of sites than choice would be really helpful um, to maybe see um, if if there were actually options for the performer to work um, in either scenario. Um, yeah, I've generally yes. <laughs> like, please um, more. I like. I, I would say. Uh, add, I think it'd be really helpful to look at. Um, comparable cities, policies, not just in their incentives, but where they are with FAR and height Mm -hmm. as a baseline. Mm -hmm. I don't know if 200, 400 is the appropriate, knowing that it goes back to the 60s as our baseline, that it might actually be more appropriate that we have a buy right that's increased Mm -hmm. and that the premium is a more unique tool instead of the typical tool Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, as well to be applied.
14: Okay, thank you. we could we can look at that and then um, I think the FAR was only introduced in 2009. I think before how um, it was done it was just some square footage or maybe bumps in in height and then again the pedestrian amenity has always been very small, no more than something like 10 square feet. Can I to clarify though, like the from the report like
11: the 200 and 400 FAR, like the the by right FAR. <laughs> When, when was that adopted in the timeline?
14: 2009. So that was part of coming out of the A2-D2. When we got the
11: D1-D2 zoning? Mm-hmm.
14: Yes. OK. Yeah. Pro, what was it prior? What was our density
11: prior to that? Was it just height? Like what were we getting? How did we, how'd we get campus I can, tower?
15: <laughs> I can pull Sorry. together that, um, the exact data, but discussion late night purposes. Yeah. Most of downtown was zoned C2A. And some of it was C two B, and those were by right zoning were in the two and four hundred range. So, I'll verify, but it that was the ballpark. So okay. the base zoning did what is not drastically different pre A two D two, but yeah, we can yeah. pull together a little appendix kind of thing.
11: Yeah, like the history of the current density. Has it been this way for 40 years or for 14 years um, would be helpful to see? It's
15: closer to 40 years, 60 yeah. years um, yeah. than just 15. Like I said, it, it has fluxed and varied, but um, it, um, it's not like it was 50% and, and now is 400. It's more closer than that. Great.
0: Thank you. Go ahead. Thanks for pulling this together. I mean, one of the things that strikes me, this was in the report that you sent and also the graphs that you shared, was a perception that development has really slowed and that in particular nobody's taken. I mean, I went into this thinking nobody's taken premiums in the last four years. And in fact, I mean, based on your graphs, we've gotten more projects that are from premiums than not premiums being used. And that hadn't happened previously.
14: Is that, am I, am I interpreting that right? Except that you're not getting as many people using the residential premiums as before. So what people have started to do is take the green building premiums um, or the pedestrian premiums, which have less FAR. Uh-huh. Um, and then also the effect of that is then you're not building housing, either residential, just market rate, residential in general, and yeah. definitely not affordable.
0: So right now, from the data, you can't pick that up because it's just based on number of projects. Yeah. And, I mean, honestly, I can't think of any projects in the downtown that are not residential, that don't include residential in the last four years. We've got things out of town.
7: That's, that's. I think you're right. Right? Please. So our split is like, it's 2018
11: to 2022, not, like, on that table, not 2019
0: yeah but even on in the slide presentation tonight they included things that were more broken down one of the very first graphs was more granular and that did show like um year by year i think this one like i mean look at 2019 2020 look 2022 like 2019
8: was pre, pre right because
0: uh, right? mm-hmm. yeah. yeah so and and so I would suggest that it's not as... I, I'm not saying that we don't need to change things. That is not at all I'm <laughs> suggesting. I'm just suggesting that I don't... I think that there's more going on and that these numbers alone, like, I don't think are painting the full picture of kind of what's going on, be, in part mm-hmm. because maybe it's because it's number of projects rather than number of units. Yeah. And so I, my sense is that development generally has, like, s- has slowed down. Um, But... I, but this was not actually like, again, this was not, uh, I, I didn't totally see that from this. Um, and even, even in just the things, if you just take 2020, 2020 to 2022, we got more premium projects than not premium projects. So, um, in terms of your questions, uh, I, I mean, the things that regularly come before us, and that I think that we need to try to get at is we need more development because we have way more jobs than we have people. So, like, we don't want to slow that. But, like, affordability and green are the things <laughs> that every single time we, we ping on people. And so, how I, I think that we need, if we can't have it all, <laughs> like, I really, I really look to, I would in the research for those other places that you're looking at, like other places with premiums, I would also think about how they balance those things. And I don't know that that's just the desk research. I think it might be picking up and calling and understanding, like, are they mm-hmm. actually growing? Is it doing the things that they... Because if somebody researches us right now, they'd be like, look, at Arbor's got it all. <laughs> And maybe we do, like, right? But if, it's, if there's a perception that it's not getting us what we want. So that's the, that's, yeah. Maybe not super coherent, but yeah. So, Thank you for all this. Together.
14: No, so what I'm taking away from it is that um, use, um, if we can have it by number of units um, in terms of the numbers and maybe um, chunk it out by when policy changes happened, um, that would be helpful and maybe show more. Um, but then also that priorities are always affordability in green, in green building and it might be worthwhile to dig deeper on those particular incentives and how other communities have Implemented them and what has been their success?
0: Exactly, and we had this conversation before about lead, right? Like maybe lead is not the right.
14: Yes, isn't I, like deja yes, do I, all I over was part. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm fine with that. It's part of a planning career.
0: <laughs> and 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 even I think the the much simpler thing that we regularly talk about here at this table is like, is electrification the thing? Like it's not you there's so many points within lead that you just get because you're downtown and you can check and maybe and again because of the requirements overall like maybe that's not the right standard but anyway i think in your research specifically thinking about that if they do anything according like what their policies are regarding electrification because i think that helps for a lot of other things that we're working on too
15: i'm gonna jump in and um because you had mentioned affordability and um, green are the things. But for the table and for the discussion purposes, is it affordability? Is it housing? Or is it both? They could be three distinct things. But anyway, I'm not saying what the answer is. I'm just saying as you're thinking about for feedback, that's sort of also the level. Right now, we only incentivize affordable housing, is that the we, we should talk about that. Or that's the purpose of part of this.
1: Commissioner yeah. Dish. I just want to add another category, um, being mindful of the discussion that we just had as these discussions are going together, that mm-hmm. it, you know, it is not just housing, it's multifamily market rate housing. So in the sense that in the downtown, we are seeing a lot of housing that is high bedroom count units, which does not uh, which has a narrow, that's a, that's appealing to a sector of the market. And where we are not hitting our goals is precisely those people who have jobs here and would like to live here but do not want to live here with five roommates, even with an ensuite. <laughs> Commissioner Clark, did you have?
12: Yeah. Um, I just was going to mention that I think sometimes it's a useful measure, and hopefully this makes sense, of affordability to also look at the rate of increase of rents and um, on multifamily housing burden um, mm-hmm. and not just looking at, you know, expecting individual projects, how many quote unquote, affordable developments have come through, but also like, are our rents increasing at a higher rate than comparable cities? Um, And then maybe looking at trying to slow down the rate of increase on housing costs proportionate to budget. Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah.
7: Yeah, I would be curious to understand so the the distinction alexis you were making between like quote affordable we need we need another word besides affordable this is the problem because it's like affordable yeah affordability maybe housing affordability, housing affordability. there you go okay mm-hmm. i like that um because you know we just passed this big millage for affordable housing but it doesn't mean that we have housing affordability mm-hmm in in our downtown at all Mm -hmm. and so and and i think we've all seen this trend towards either five or six bedroom units or the the low rise big Mm -hmm. huge million dollar condo things Mm -hmm. and is there anything in between i would love to incentivize smaller units that somebody who you know whatever teacher could live downtown and maybe it's in a 500 square foot unit you know what i mean but it's like you have the opportunity to be able to live downtown and so that's the market that i would be i would really like to be able to incentivize and exploit so that we're not just getting these huge you know basically retired people who have a lot of money. You know, I mean, that's kind of what it starts to sort of feel like. And I don't want to discriminate against, but I just think that we're missing a, a chunk of, um, of humanity here in We have a lack of
1: diversity we're, in our right. housing. And if you, you go to, like, income.
7: Ypsilanti, it feels yeah. really different because there's, like, a ton of young people that are living there mm-hmm. in a way that we don't have here, you know. So I would love to be able to see, like, how can we try to incentivize, like, s- somehow things that are just more more housing affordability for Ann Arbor and, and understanding, I guess, how the millage plays into that. I don't know, there's probably not any easy comparisons you know, with other cities with that, but that does add a whole different thing into this that you know, with all this data, is when that housing millage got passed and just how that affects how we think about the affordable housing piece, because all of a sudden we're gonna have this huge opportunity with a whole bunch of units all coming online and should we be managing, almost kind of micromanaging at such a tiny little scale the affordable housing stuff, you know, five units here, seven units there, whatever, when we Mm -hmm. all of a sudden are going to have hundreds of units coming online in our downtown. So I would in some ways rather focus on housing affordability Mm -hmm. downtown than affordable housing given the backdrop of our affordable housing village.
13: I just want to jump in. And one of our, um, in our scope and our proposal, the next step is to, is to interview some stakeholders. And one of them is the affordable housing community um, Jennifer Hall, Washington Housing Alliance, et because they have a, perhaps, have a completely different perspective on how that's done. Um, and, I, and I think we may have some really uh, interesting perspective from them with regards to this affordability downtown versus affordable housing, et cetera, and some of the things that. that that you are raising, to, so. Um, I think we'll have some interesting feedback from them on that.
7: Commissioner Clark,
12: I just want to mention, too, one of the biggest um, shortages in, in this, uh, one of the hardest housing to find from what my experience with non-profit housing finding is um, multi- multi-family units, not necessarily six bedrooms, but family units, things that are um, available to like women with children, uh, small families. Um, and micro units or like SEO, like single occupancy units, those are really a very limited use of, um, you know, obviously they favor single men, um, young people, which is fine. But then I think there is an important conversation about housing affordability to be had about if we are providing incentives. And of course, incentives are different from subsidies or, um, but making sure that, um, the target, you know, the missing middle conversation is kind of what this goes back to, and just making sure that um, there is a full scope, and but we're not um, sacrificing, like we just mentioned, diversity. But multifamily units um, with multiple bedrooms are in massively short supply. So I just want to throw that out there,
7: Commissioner Lee.
8: Thank you. Um, kind of tightening to these three questions of stakeholders. So this is a question for staff. Um, what level of coordination are we having with the, the comprehensive planning process, and how does this really kind of fit into it? Could I get a little clarity on, like, is this first? Does this fit, feed in, or is, that, uh, is it working together? I just, I'm just i wondering.
15: We're not coordinating at all whatsoever.
8: OK, no yeah, coordination.
15: And, you know, just siloed oh.
2: No. separate rooms. No, it is going first. Okay. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that the Planning Commission identified this on your work program. This is one, um, I don't know if you remember, sometimes I am reluctant to let you add additional things to your program because I want to get that comprehensive plan done.
6: Sure. There's Mm -hmm. a
2: connection there, but I have heard that this is something that is on that short list to explore. As indicated, there is some opportunity to move even within our current plan. I anticipate our comprehensive plan might point us in future directions, but Mm -hmm. um, zoning is a living thing.
8: Uh, thank you. Um, it's helpful. Uh, so my first thought was um, the lack of use utilization of the green premium means do we look at strengthening that? We often hear a lot about the importance of uh, again heat pump systems. I mean, we use lead as kind of a, a standard. We've talked a lot about electrification again we we are grappling with what is that within the legal purview of the the planning um, enabling act uh, to say do we reward uh, electrification. So, um, the first thought that I had reading this was perhaps we look at you know maybe it's strengthening or you know uh, boosting the green premium to more than two hundred and fifty percent to three. Does that make an incremental difference? Um, you know, I, I heard you about the political overlays, um, I'll, uh, Commissioner Weich. Um, my my first thought really kind of went to um, there's two large factors that we look at you know kind of like. Thinking about real estate development in general, um, first off, it's normalization of construction prices, um, materials. I mean, from what used to be $120, $150 a square foot is you know 180 to 100, uh, you know, 210 The or you know type 1A's uh, and concrete and steel are vastly more expensive. Um, the other large kind of salient variable to possibly look at is normalization of property tax assessment practices on new builds. So um, the way to look at it is cents per dollar of rent collected. So what's the actual, like, proportion? So um, we've heard from folks building in St. Paul. Uh, you know, and, and the, the reason that, you know, the political overlay and these two things, the assessment practices, construction prices, and its impact on the development curve, I, I fear that it's a little outside the purview of this particular analysis, right? It, it's how do we um, Optimize kind of like downtown premiums, rather than how do we you know maximize the delivery of units. So I'm I'm trying to make sure that like we stay within this kind of type premium, but uh, or purview of what we're looking to do. So my first thought was um, we should probably you know try to coordinate comprehensive plan and this uh, boosting green premiums as that is more kind of larger um, like that's a very large thing that we hear uh, every Tuesday. And then, yeah, if you wanted to, again, take a look at uh, segmenting out, you know, obviously, like, the larger periods, um, and then also segment units delivered versus entitled units, right? So, like, what was actually built relative to how many projects were actually, uh, you know, uh, approved? So the um, thought process I also have is, you know, while you might have approvals, yeah, they might just not be delivered. Sometimes they're just waiting, right? Yeah. So, um, other than that, uh, yeah, and I think unit number of units is important too because uh, you know, Metalark is what four four unit or, or six six units, sorry. Um, but uh, I mean, that's not actually D one, right? That's sorry.
5: yeah, Arlington,
8: Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So, Four units. Oh, right. So, so I'm, I'm thinking like the projects may you know uh, have a disproportionate relative to actual yeah. units and the efficacy in which um, our premiums have delivered units to make uh, salient and substantial impacts on affordability. So um, other than that, I mean, thank you for putting this together. This is such a cool, uh, again, and comprehensive overview of, you know, how did we get here? Um, so I think this is really important work that you guys are doing. So uh, I'd also love if um, whoever's interested, I'd love to be able to take a look at the data set that you guys have put together to see if there's additional kind of, uh, you know, kind of have different people be able to, you know, proffer thoughts, maybe, you know, make it more of a all-hands-on-deck kind of approach. I don't, um, might be, uh, but, uh, yeah, thank you again for putting this together. Thank you.
7: Thank you. Commissioner White.
4: Uh, Just a couple clarifying questions. When we are talking about downtown, are we just talking about the DDA boundary?
14: We're talking about the D1, the D2 zoning boundary. boundary.
4: But, okay. Um, So are you not including R4C that would also be inside that boundary?
15: Right. For this purpose is only the zoning districts where we offer premiums. So. Um, I think we, when we talk of downtown we're using it as just proxy for the districts that have premiums because the discussion is the, the changing the menu of options for premiums. Um, some of these same topics apply to other zoning districts but those R4C doesn't, there are no premiums available in R4C so whatever we do here won't affect
4: that. But it's in downtown but you're um, only looking at downtown through well, the zoning lens yeah. not through the physical boundary right. of I what that, we would consider downtown
15: yeah i think that a downtown is officially defined as the um we treat it as one and the same as the dda boundaries which are like 66 blocks right. um and it includes the vast majority of it is d1 and d2 but there are some puds and there are some pls
4: and there's also some R4C inside that D-D-A boundary.
14: I don't think there's R4C, but I think there's a little spot of C2B.
4: Okay, well, I'm not going to argue j- with <laughs> you.
14: But um, <laughs> going forward for clarification, since we're only talking about the D1 and D2 zoning districts, yeah. I think maybe it might be better if we use that nomenclature rather than downtown, because it can be confusing in terms well, of how it, or you draw.
4: I think where I was going was it would be helpful to see a boundary map, like to okay. see a map of what you're actually looking at. Because if we're if we were looking at the DDA, then one of my questions would be, um, how much are are you interfacing with how the D2 interfaces with D1, so that would would it make sense? I guess where I'm going is, would it make sense to just extend D1 to all of what's inside the DDA boundary if that was the downtown, and what impacts would that have on us meeting some of our goals? Um, and so, but but it sounds like you're doing something slightly different, which is hard for me to enter into without a visual, um, because I'm using the DDA, but that's not the boundary that you're looking at. You're just looking at the properties that are zoned in that D1, D2 space. So some kind of um, overlay to just see what yeah. that looks like. And if you could then uh, compare that to 2009, so that would be... Um, um, I take a good reference point to be able to look at those two maps of how we've made those changes. It would at least be helpful to me as I enter into this uh, conversation. And then uh, Gainesville, Florida is a target city for me uh, because they share a lot of similarity with us. They're a university town. They're wrestling with the same kind of price issues. The uh, It would be helpful for you to account for the segregation that's a part in Gainesville which is present in Ann Arbor but is not as overt as it was in Gainesville because there is clearly a black side of town and clearly a white side and there's a dividing line. Um, But I think they're having a lot of the same conversations. They're trying to settle some of the same problems and their community is responding uh, in a lot of similar ways that I see the community in Ann Arbor responding to uh, some of the student housing that's going up uh, in the downtown, which is not actually the DDA, but this zoning piece. So if I could get a little bit more clarity into there, I think I can participate a little bit better uh, in
8: these conversations.
14: We'll absolutely get you those maps and then look at Gainesville. Thank you for the suggestions.
8: Commissioner Lee. Thanks, I'll make this brief. stakeholders to possibly engage with, um, like P3 specialists, um, so p- private-public partnerships, um, like the Perna, or these these folks that structure. I mean, Luke Bonner's kind of comes to mind, Tom Gritter. Uh, Spark, um, I think, would also be, you know, folks. I mean, they're, they're, they literally are in downtown. So they might be good to talk with. Uh, PACE specialists um, that, spe- you know, specialize in green incentives. So what would they like to see? Um, the other thing that I'm actually also interested in from a data point is um, length of days it takes to actually receive entitlements from so from the time that you go to a pre-app meeting to when you actually get entitlements. And is there a non-spurious, uh, statistically significant correlation between choosing to go for entitlement or I'm sorry, premiums and that length of time? So is that we, we heard, I mean, as we were talking about Metalark, we heard light and clear. It takes a very long time. I mean, Doug had to go through five years on this. So uh, are there, um, is there a non-spurious, non-random relationship between choosing to pursue premiums and the length of time that it takes to you know, actually achieve entitlement from the pre-app meeting to here? So, um, yeah, that, that, that was my thought. Thanks.
7: I'd also be curious to know what other communities are using as their green rating system. Is, is lead the only thing in town, or are people using other other methods, or do you see other communities just using the electrification piece? You know, like Commissioner Liu was bringing up. Curious to see what the metrics, what people are using as metrics for that.
14: Okay, we can look into that. Mm-hmm.
9: All
7: righty, any other comments? Okay, everybody's looking a little bleary-eyed. <laughs> so,
13: th- thank you for your feedback. Um, we, we don't have a date yet set when we come back to you. Obviously, there's a lot here that we have to pick through so um, and yeah. in interview stakeholders. So probably participate in the next uh, couple of months we'll be back in front of you with, uh, with some more information. So, uh, Again, feel free to reach out um, either through Alexis or Brad if you got any more ideas or thoughts. Um, uh, as we move forward with the project,
7: thanks for sticking with us through this meeting. Thank you. Oh, you. <laughs> All righty. Uh, we have one more thing. Do people want to blast through this or take a little body break? Is, are people doing okay? And we also have the blast through? Nope. <laughs> okay, let's blast through. Item 9B, which is 2195 East Ellsworth, a pre PUD application conference, proposed amendments to existing PUD to reduce the front yard setback. All
2: right. Um, thank you. Uh, this is uh, just as you described. Um, I am. Sorry for a little bit of my distraction. Uh, Mr. Kowalski was to join us, but um, Zoom is not my friend tonight. Mm -hmm. Uh, In any event, um, we have um, Mr. Sosnowski and um, Mr. Lockwood available via Zoom. Um, They are the petitioners representing the Lockwood um, senior housing development that is located at uh, 2195 East Ellsworth Road. Uh, this was recently adopted as a planned unit development. And in the course of um, developing, they, um, were, they and by an extent we have learned that the ALTA survey on which their original plan was based was slightly in error. It was slightly in error to the point that now there is a slight encroachment of the front of the building. Um, We did build in a couple of feet of flexibility, but it is still um, encroaching. So um, in order to be in full compliance, as they are pursuing some incentives to help with the affordable units as part of this, um, they have to do these regular uh, surveys and have to be in compliance. So they are here um, to present um, the potential for an amendment that would reduce the front yard setback by a few feet to accommodate the location of the building in its current position, um, it is require would require an amendment to the zoning. Uh, ergo, our conversation previously about uh, 415. Um, uh, I personally, from a staff perspective, I think that it's reasonable. Um, the benefits that were um, provided previously with the affordable units there um, remain, and um, it is a complex but a bit of a perfunctory cleanup of uh, site conditions on the site. So with that, um, I think we also have um, Mr. Lockwood and um, uh, available to uh, address any questions. But if you don't have any, um, we can also move on. I mean, the question would just be that if you agree with that, um, the proposed amendment would come, there wouldn't be any additional public benefits, it would modify the front yard setback. Um, They're proposing it with a concept plan so that um, it's just going to um, illustrate that and then they would subsequently submit uh, uh, administrative amendment to reflect the change in our records. Yes.
0: I confess that I was going to go there this weekend, but couldn't drive down Ellsworth this weekend, so I sent my husband instead. And it looks like there's a lot of construction already. The yep. building is there. There. So, uh, I mean, <laughs> what's the difference? Like, I don't like right. Like this.
2: The so the, that building, um, based, again, because the Alta survey has been updated. Is um, I don't I'm sorry I don't have the dimension. It is a f- about two or three feet forward on one corner, not the entirety of the building of right. the minimum front yard setback. And so this proposed change um, that would come to you with full public hearing and consideration would be requesting a modification to that front yard setback um, to allow the building to remain in its place that you physically see, um, consistent with an updated and accurate Alta survey. Okay. Yeah. And we don't, uh, yeah, there's no vote. This is just an opportunity for you to have any preliminary feedback. Um, We don't have a more simple amendment to this. It's still a legislative change. That's why it still has to go through this process. That's why I was hoping it was okay, just sort of tagging it onto an already long agenda. Mm -hmm. All right, I'm not hearing, I'm not seeing any concerns. It is a legislative change because it will affect the rezoning, but it is changing the front yard setback. It's not changing the public benefits. It's not changing the progress project substantially. It's not changing the project.
7: Okay, <laughs> not, not hearing anything.
5: Not, not, not hearing not, anything. It's just, an opportunity. Again, go, go it's just ahead. an opportunity for
2: you to say, no, we have some concerns about it. No, we we have, and I'm not hearing anything, so we will uh, instruct them to proceed as planned.
7: Sounds good. Alrighty, so we are on to item 10, which is our last opportunity for public comment. This is an opportunity for persons to speak up to three minutes about any issues that is not listed on the public hearing of this agenda, or actually anything on this public agenda. Um, we'll first call in individuals present uh, to address the commission, then remote to speak during this public uh, um, hearing remotely. Press star 9 if listening by phone or use the raise hand feature if viewing through the web link. For phone access, call 877-853-5247. And enter meeting ID 97766341226 to unmute. Press star six. City staff will select callers that have raised their hand using the last three digits of your phone number, or by name if available. For those accessing through the web link, you'll hear an automated announcement that the host is allowing you to speak. When speaking, please move to a quiet area. For either method, please state your name and address at the beginning of your comments. The lights are getting turned off as we speak. Is there anyone <laughs> present who would like to speak? No, all right, anybody remote that is in line.
2: I do not see any speakers indicating remotely.
7: Okay, is there any commission proposed business? I'm sure it's a long list, right? Yeah. I promise. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> okay, we are on to adjournment. Motion to adjourn by Commissioner Zobei and seconded by Commissioner Dish. All those in favor, say aye. 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 We are adjourned. You stuck with us all. Yes.